Good morning. We welcome everybody to Bible class, and especially those on our KFUO listening audience. And today we're going to continue our discussion concerning the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And we're going to begin at verse 28. 28. Where Paul writes, Let a man examine himself, and so uh, eat from the bread and drink from the cup. All right, so our focus is, what does examine yourself mean? Now, we're dealing with the abuses here in the Corinthian church. Uh, they were dishonoring not only the sacrament, but they were dishonoring one another by not waiting for each other and by continuing uh, in the supper, uh, overeating, overdrinking. So one of the things that has to be part of examine yourself is what is your attitude toward the Lord's Supper and toward one another? Now, certainly, um, this is an emphasis uh, for every Christian to look at how, what is your attitude towards the supper and towards one another. So the first thing is, what is your attitude? And the keys here would be, do I realize that I'm a sinful person? Do I know my sin? And realize that the only way I have forgiveness is through Jesus Christ. And that's where it begins. To ask yourself those questions. To ask yourself the question, do I believe I receive the forgiveness of sins in this sacrament because I'm receiving the body and blood of Christ? And when it comes to your attitude towards others, with the help of the Holy Spirit, do you intend to amend your sinful life so you leave the life of love toward others? as you are called to lead. Now we emphasize this, um, that each person needs to go through this uh, every time before you receive the Lord's Supper. Not, you know, in, in great detail, but at least think about it. It used to be, and many of you may remember, that you could not take communion on a Sunday unless you had had a time of confession and absolution with the pastor on Saturday. There was such a day. Now that was very manageable in a small church. That couldn't happen here at St. Paul's. I mean, it's just too many people. 
but the self-examination is still critical. Now, this has applications. The first application is, that is why we don't commune children. Is because if we look at this, can a two-year-old know what they're doing? Do they realize their sin? Do they, they can't verbalize this yet. They're not to that point. So the, the question has always been, at what point should we commune our young people? And the debate has always centered around when can a child understand abstract concepts like sin, grace, faith, those things that are not empirically facts like science, but they are abstract concepts. When can a child have that kind of understanding enough to do a self-examination? And always the standard has been seventh or eighth grade. Okay. However, I want you to be aware there are a number of churches in, in our church body that have gone lower to fifth grade. Okay? I don't know of any lower than that, but fifth grade. Because they felt like they could understand. Now, from a guy that taught confirmation class for 40 years, um, I can tell you it's much easier to teach a fifth grader than an eighth grader. Fifth graders love their pastors. Eighth graders, well, they're just out there. Okay? So there are teaching differences. But certainly, anybody in their practice of the Lord's Supper, this is what they need to take into consideration. Can the child understand the abstract concepts and be able to do a self-examination. This also applies at the other end of life. Unfortunately, those that have severe dementia or Alzheimer's, sometimes we have to make the difficult decision not to commune them anymore. When you hand them a wafer and they throw it on the floor, or you hand them a wafer and they give it back to you and don't know what to do with it, then sometimes we have to make that difficult judgment that they no longer understand what's going on. So it has application for both. Uh, it also has application for those who are uh, mentally challenged. 
or uh, severely handicapped. Our Bethesda, you've probably heard of Bethesda, does excellent work and has developed specialized materials to help make it possible for us to commune absolutely everybody we can. So this does have application uh, to our uh, lives. And um, this is kind of the second instruction concerning the Lord's Supper. Uh, the last one is, for if you eat and drink, not discerning the body, you eat and drink judgment upon yourself. So the key phrase here is discerning the body. Now, the context of all these verses is that the body refers to the body of Jesus Christ that was given on the cross of Calvary. There are some, however, that want to interpret that as the body of Christ, which is the church. In other words, you don't discern the, the, the physical body, but the whole church. This is a problem because that is entirely too broad. Certainly, uh, what Paul is talking about is discerning that the body of Christ is in these sacraments. That's what he's talking about. Otherwise, and, and you go back to the first verse, if you receive it unworthily, you are guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. So, if you don't discern that the body is there, it says, you eat and drink judgment, you are guilty of the body and blood of Christ upon yourself. So it, it's a whole unit here. So that's a, a critical decision in who we commune. Someone that simply does not believe that the body and blood of Christ are in the sacrament, that, that this is somehow a representation symbolic that the body and blood of Christ are not truly there this verse is saying they should not commune they should not commune and so if you look at these three verses together we begin to get a pretty clear at least we believe picture of who should commune and who should not. Now, if you are in a, uh, uh, here at St. Paul's, we always have a communion statement in the bulletin that describes these things. We talked about last week how uh, people come to the pastor and ask if they commune and how we try to deal with these things. 
But these three verses are pretty much the guidance that we have on um, how to celebrate, how to practice the Lord's Supper. Okay? How to practice. Now, there are infinite, infinite exceptions. You, you can think up all kinds of things, and there are no answers to them. I would only say this to you. Uh, the pastors here at St. Paul's take this very seriously. When it comes to the exceptions, you need to trust them. Because they're going to try to apply the scriptural principles as best they can. And since there are no black and white answers, they're going to have to make decisions. They may be right and they may be wrong, but they've got to do it. So it's important to trust your pastors with these exceptions that have to be made or the exceptions that need to be made. Let them deal with that. I always told the people, especially the confirmation classes, it's very difficult for you to deal with this with a friend or a family member, don't you deal with it. Bring them to the pastor. Let him be the bad guy. Let him be the heavy. You don't need to do it. That's what we're here for. Bring him to the pastors and we will deal with that. And you, you should not have to. Because you're not the call pastor. You're not the one that should be making the decision. Let the pastors do it. One more verse and then I'll take some questions. Verse 30. Because of this, uh, many of you are uh, weak, sick, and some have died. Now, what Paul is saying here uh, is that the reason that there are weak, sick people and some have died is because of the abuse of the Lord's Supper. We don't know that this is a universal passage that's going to happen anytime anybody takes it unworthily. But it was certainly happening, evidently, in Corinth. And it may have been an example that God was setting uh, of them, making an example out of them so others would realize how serious the Lord's Supper was. But, you know, if somebody gets sick the week after they take the Lord's Supper, you don't say, well, you blew it. You, you didn't examine yourself or you didn't, you took it unworthily. We don't, we don't say that. Okay. That is Paul saying that 
and he was inspired by God, we don't do that. We don't judge people's motives and hearts. Okay. There's a few more thoughts here, but they're really uh, focused on Corinth. So, questions, comments? Yes. Right. That's right. That's why we as Lutherans do not believe in enumerating every sin. We simply confess that we are by nature sinful and unclean. Some confessions include that we are confessing those sins that we know and those sins that we don't know. But it's not necessary to confess and try to list every one of your sins. You can't do it. Okay? There are too many. And there are many we don't even know. So that's why uh, we don't enu uh, demand enumeration of sins. Yeah. Yes, Don. Yeah, that, that's general, and it, unless you can snag an elder, and, and some elders are wise enough to, to speak with them. But uh, yeah, it does happen where people come in after we're in the chancel, and we can't deal with it. But in general, uh, if they're Lutheran Church in Missouri Synod, we welcome them. But, you know, if they tell you they're Methodists, then you should probably say, you need to talk to the pastor first and you'll have to wait. You'll have to wait. Yes. No, um, you haven't read the communion announcement in a while. It doesn't say that anymore. Uh, it never said if you answer these correctly, you can commune. It's always included the line, if you are not a member of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, please speak with the pastor. And that's what it says now. Because I reread it this morning just to make sure that's what it said. Yes. Well, that was maybe that was what was going on in Corinth, and Paul interpreted it that way. We can't interpret that with every person, so we don't try. God was using that as an example to show how serious and how important the practice, the celebration of the sacrament is. Um, but it, it's it's. Uh, it would be wrong for me as the pastor if you got the flu this week and you communed on Sunday. Well, God got you because you weren't, you weren't worthy. That's not the application here. We, we can't make that application. Well, they died. 
They got sick and died. No, you can't go to communion anymore if you die. That's right. That is a correct understanding. <laughs> yes. Well, you know, if somebody's on their death, here, here's the thing. Communion is not essential for salvation. Faith in Jesus Christ is. There are such things as emergency baptisms. There is no such thing as an emergency communion. If they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, they don't need communion. Okay. Yes, Paul. Yeah. It's in the hymnal. It's not a part of the catechism that anybody memorizes. Kids don't memorize it. But there are 20 questions there, and they are part of the, the uh, small catechism. Look at them sometime. They're very thorough, and they would be a good way of examining yourself. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah, it's a forgivable sin. Um, but, you know, if you, um, if it's perpetual all your life, it's basically taking the sacrament and using it on your own terms. What I believe is what it is. And what this is saying is, it's Christ's, and we believe what he says. Okay? But it would be, yes, it would be forgivable. Yeah. Yes. No. I mean, you can make the argument, nobody deserves to take it. But God, by his gracious will, gives it to us. He just wants us to know what we're doing. Okay? That we're receiving his body and blood. Yes. Yeah. Well, um, it, it's hard to trace. What happened was that as people, Catholic priests, began to follow Luther, he went uh, in about 1524, 1525, and visited the churches. 
and saw what the problems were. His answer was to write the small catechism as a guide to give to those pastors, priests, who were following his teachings, a guide. How that transitioned, you'd have to ask a historical expert. But it certainly, uh, in some churches, they went fast and it didn't go well, okay? But it transitioned over time. Yeah, transitioned over time. Yes, Absolutely. Uh, if you're in a church that practices what we call open communion, and they commune everybody that comes to the rail, you may decide, I cannot commune there. And that is valid. That is certainly valid. Certainly. I, Yeah, you know, you might make that, you, you might take a communion uh, in a church and then find out later what their practice is. Um, that's why we have a forgiving God, okay? He's not going to hold you responsible for what you don't know, okay, about the place where you come in. All right. Let's finish these few verses right here, and we'll move to a totally different topic. All right, so 31, 31 through the end of the chapter. Um, all right. This is the final applications. But if we judged ourselves, we would not be judged. In other words, if you're called upon to judge yourself, what's the verdict always going to be? Not guilty. <laughs> I didn't do that. They're worse than I am, but not guilty. Okay? We're not the ones that judge. Remember what I told you, the sacrament belongs to God, to the Lord Jesus, not to us. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. In other words, when the Lord says this is incorrect, it is the discipline of the Lord so we don't fall under his ultimate judgment at the end of time. It's to correct us. It's to bring us back. Okay? That's what's being said. So these instructions 
are for our good. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. In other words, don't continue this practice that you're presently doing, because that's going to be under God's judgment. In other words, these instructions are to discipline you so that you don't continue to make these mistakes. About the other things, I will give you direction when I come. Okay? When I come. In other words, we don't know what the other matters would have been, but he was planning another trip to see them and would deal with those matters at that time. Okay? So, that's the end of the discussion concerning the Lord's Supper. Now he switches to another item that was in this letter. Because each time he goes to a new item, it starts the same. Now concerning. That's the, that's the, the Greek phrase that lets you know he's now dealing with another concern that was in their letter. All right. So... Um, we begin 12. Now concerning, uh, your translation probably says spiritual gifts, but it actually is just spiritual things. I do not want you to be ignorant. Now, he's going to discuss spiritual gifts now through the end of chapter 14. Okay? Now through the end of chapter 14. For you know that when you were Gentiles, you were carried along uh, by dumb idols, however you were led. Okay, so he's going back to their former days when they were led by idols. And he puts dumb in there because there's a lot of passages that remind us that an idol can't see or hear or speak. So he throws the word dumb in there just, just to add emphasis. There's no sense in worshiping these things. They can't do you any good. And then verse 3 and 4. I want you to know that no one speaking in the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed. And no one is able to say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. All right. He is going to begin his discussion of spiritual gifts by reminding us that whatever we have, whatever gifts we have, are by the working of the Holy Spirit and not by our own working. Not by our own working. The, the reason we have faith in our heart, the reason we can confess Jesus Christ is Lord, is because God the Holy Spirit has worked that faith in our hearts. 
and without the Holy Spirit, we could not confess that Jesus is Lord. Okay? We could not confess that Jesus is Lord. Remember what Luther wrote, meaning to the third article of the Creed. I cannot by my own reason or strength believe in Jesus Christ my Lord or come to him. But the Holy Spirit has called me by the gospel. So only by the power of the Holy Spirit can we confess that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is our Savior. It all begins there. That is the real gift. That's the real gift. If you didn't have anything else, if you've got that, you have forgiveness in life. They're yours. And, on the other hand, um, if you are a believer, you're not going to say, Jesus be cursed. Okay? Jesus be cursed. So the total, and this goes back to the whole thing in Scripture. All of it says, if you're saved, God did it. If you're damned, you're, it's your own fault. That's what the scriptures teach. So he begins with that premise. And then he moves on. For there is a variety of grace gifts, things of grace, but the same Spirit, and a variety of services, but the same Lord, and a variety of workings, but the same God works all in all. Now notice, the Spirit is mentioned, the Lord is mentioned, and God is mentioned. We believe that this is reference to the Holy Trinity. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Lord, that is the common title for Jesus Christ. God is the Father. So what it's saying is, God is working these things. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the whole Trinity. You see, we don't try to divide what the Holy Spirit does from what the Son does. Because the works of God are not divisible, okay? We can't say, well, only Jesus does this, or only God the Father does this. It doesn't, the scriptures don't do that. So for instance, 
If you read the whole New Testament, we're told that Jesus was raised from the dead himself, that God the Father raised him from the dead, and that the Holy Spirit raised him from the dead. It says they all did. Okay? Here they're saying God works all these things. Okay? We do not divide the external works of the Holy Trinity. We only divide the internal works of the Holy Trinity. This is your theological lesson for today. We divide the internal works of the Trinity because that's what's described in Scripture. So the Father is neither made nor created nor begotten. The Son is neither made nor created but begotten. The Holy Spirit is neither made nor created nor begotten but proceeding. That's how there are three distinct persons. That's internal. That's way beyond us. Way beyond us. But we don't divide the external works of God because the whole Trinity is working for our good. So this is reminding us that there are a variety of workings, services, spiritual grace gifts in the scriptures, but that God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all active in providing them to the church. Okay? They just want us to think in a broad term about the work of God. Okay? The work of God. And then he begins a list. He gives to each a manifestation of the Spirit for the building up or the common good. For to one, the Spirit gives a word of wisdom. To another, a word of knowledge, according to the same Spirit. To one, to another, faith uh, in the same Spirit. To another, gracious gifts of healing in the Spirit. To another, the working of great things or the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, uh, the discernment of spirits. To another, tongues. To another, the translation or interpretation of tongues. And all these he works in, uh, in each. Um, the, uh, he distributes them, the Spirit distributes them to each one as he wills. 
All right, so we have a list of spiritual gifts here. There's another list of spiritual gifts in Romans chapter 12. Some believe there's another uh, list of spiritual gifts in Ephesians 4. They don't all match. So the first thing we can say is these lists of spiritual gifts are not exhaustive. They are just descriptive. That is, he's listing a few of many. He's not trying to list them all. He's listing a few of many. And they differ. But it's God giving them. No matter which one it is, it's God giving them. Now, the Lord gives spiritual gifts when and where they are needed. At the time that they are needed for the preaching and proclamation of the gospel. If they are needed, then God makes sure that they are there. If they are not, they may not be around. So to give you an example, in the Old Testament there were times when there were great prophets speaking and there were times when no prophets were speaking. No prophets were speaking. None of these gifts is promised to an individual person. God enlisting these does not say every Christian is going to have all of these. He is saying, if he wants you to have it, you'll have it. And that changes with time, with what's going on. So I'll give you an example. Prophecy. There is a difference between a prophet and a preacher. I don't know of any prophets today. That's an office that we don't look at someone and say, you're a prophet of God. You may be a preacher of God. But the definition of prophet is bringing special revelations that have never been revealed from God to people. Last one to do that was revelation. And the book ends with the words, if you add to this book, I will add the plagues upon your life. And if you uh, take away uh, from this book, I'll take away your eternal life. We don't know of anybody that's bringing us new revelations from God 
And so we generally believe that the office of prophet was for the past and that God has revealed his word to us because that word is capable of teaching us everything we need to know to be saved. Same thing as apostle. We do not call people apostles today. Okay. That was the 12. Okay. That office is no longer. So what I'm trying to tell you is the Holy Spirit uses these things when and where he sees that the church needs it. Okay? Now, you're going to have to hold that thought until next week. Now, there's no doubt that one of the problems in Corinth was speaking in tongues. And we will deal with that. But that's dealt with all the way through chapter 14. Okay? So there's lots to learn uh, about spiritual gifts. And we'll take that up starting next week. Any final thoughts? Or, yes, but A little more on the internal, external work. It's described like that, but if you look through the scriptures, what you find is usually what they're doing is described as one of the other members of the Trinity is doing the same thing. God was in Christ reconciling the world. Uh, Jesus speaks of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit says, I have not come to, to point to myself, but to Christ. Um, it, they're, they're interwoven, so you just can't divvy it up. Okay, you just can't divvy it up. It's not that clean and easy. Yeah, that's right. And um, uh, so it, it's, it's just one of those things, and that's one of those time-honored teachings that we don't even attempt, just like we don't attempt to say, when Jesus Christ performs a miracle, we don't say, well, Jesus as God did that. No, Jesus as the person of Jesus Christ, both man and God, did that. We don't divide. Uh, he, he thirsted. Well, that was his manhood. No, because there is a communication of the attributes. God suffered thirst. So we never divide Jesus as a person, and we don't do the same uh, with the Trinity. Okay? Yes, uh, the Lord, that is applied to Jesus a lot. And that's why we think this uh, first part of uh, 1 Corinthians 12 is stating the Trinity. Spirit, Lord, God. Okay. Grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.